Well, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, we've spent the last 27 weeks in the book of Romans, and we've got much more to accomplish. Uh, but next week begins a new Advent series called Born at the Right Time. And we're going to look at, of course, the, the birth of Jesus, the, the, the birth narrative, and we're going to look at it from a very big picture standpoint. In other words, how does the birth of Jesus fit in the overall story of the Bible, that we call the meta-narrative, the big story. How does it fit? And, and we're even going to look at how it was predicted and foreshadowed all the way back in the early chapters uh, of Genesis. So that's coming up uh, next week. Um, but today I thought, you know, since we're kind of in between Romans and this Advent series, and this week being the week of Thanksgiving, I wanted to take just a little different approach and look at a different passage altogether and hopefully try to tie in uh, some of the things we've been talking about over the last four to six weeks and also see just how very practical and relevant uh, they are. So today, I'm going to tell you God's will for your life. I really am. Uh, and I realize that's, you know, that's a bold claim. That's an audacious claim. Uh, but you will walk out of here this morning knowing God's will for your life. So you'll be able to answer, what's God's will for my life? And also, how will I carry it out? Those will make for our two points this morning. We, we normally have, or we often have three points to, this morning, two points. And they will answer those questions. What is God's will for my life and how will I carry it out? And as I mentioned, we've been in the book of Romans for 27 weeks. And over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about the doctrine of election. Uh, not because we decided, hey, let's really... Uh, you know, camp out on this for a while. It just, we're working our way through the text and it just keeps coming up. So that's where we've been. And one point that I made a couple of weeks ago was that other than the death and resurrection of Jesus, the early church, the apostles actually talked about and celebrated the doctrine of election more than any other doctrine. So other than the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was kind of their reg regularly on their minds. It was their comfort in trials. It provided confidence in God's salvation when things went awry. In fact, uh, Charles Spurgeon writes this, if my brethren, you were acquainted with the manners of the early Christian church, you would be astonished to find how conspicuously this great doctrine appears, so much so that Christians were accustomed to address each other as elect ones. So the early church, they didn't shy away from it. They, they celebrated it. They rejoiced in the doctrine of election. It was right up there near the top of all the things they talked about. But one of the other doctrines that was uh, discussed very frequently, we could say maybe right up there with election, right under the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that was the return of Christ. So it was a regular theme, it was a, a regular topic to discuss as a church, as believers, the return of Christ. And Paul will write about this in his letters when he is trying to encourage these beleaguered and persecuted Christians and those who were seeing suffering become even more prevalent and they were seeing their friends persecuted and even being threatened themselves. Paul would write and remind them of the return of Jesus. And he would say, don't forget that in, in the middle of all that you're going through, what you have to look forward to, the great return. It was one of the very prominent ways that Paul comforted Christians who were suffering. He would, he would assure them that God will bring about justice. He's going to make everything right that's wrong with this sin-cursed world. Well, as you might expect, uh, some churches got hold of this better than others. Uh, 
There were Christians at all the churches that, that Paul planted that had as their blessed hope the return of Christ, and so they live with that in mind. Uh, but not all churches made this doctrine as central as others. But there was one church that kept it very central in their life and in their community. That was the church at Thessalonica. They lived every day in light of the promised return of Christ. In fact, they lived every day as if Christ could return on that very day. And living like that made them confident and joyful, made them a, a joyful bunch of people. In fact, the letter that we're going to look at a little bit this morning, 1 Thessalonians, is right up there with Philippians in terms of the most joyful and celebratory letters of all that Paul writes. Uh, Paul's, he's thrilled when he thinks of them. So he will say this at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. He says, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I was, as I mentioned, I was praying for you this week and praying for many of you by name and especially those of you who have submitted requests to us, just praying that God would comfort you and encourage you and heal you. And if you're in pain, that God would ease your pain. And, and I was also praying in particular for those who would be experiencing Thanksgiving alone. Um, because, you know, we, we, we look forward to the holidays and of course there's all the, the cheer and the lights and, and friends and food and all that stuff. But, but for some people, the holidays are really not a time of cheer, either because they're reflecting on the, the recent death of a loved one, or maybe they're, they're very much alone and, and they're discouraged. And sometimes I think as Christians, we, we, we tend to believe or think that, well, as a Christian, I, I shouldn't be discouraged, right? There's even a, a great hymn that, that has one, I think, rather dubious line, we should never be discouraged. And that it's hard, it doesn't really reconcile with the scriptures. In fact, Christians do get discouraged. And the apostle Paul, he also went through seasons of discouragement, at one point during his second missionary journey, Paul was really, really down. Uh, he'd been in Athens, and when he was in Athens, he got a, not even a lukewarm reception, he got a very cold reception. The people just did not believe what he was saying to them. The Athenians wanted to debate and discuss every philosophy, but they, they, weren't, they weren't really eager to hear about the resurrection. So Paul's in Athens, and things go very poorly. And now, now some people, by God's grace, some people respond in, in faith in Christ, but, but overall there's a lot of skepticism, a lot of doubt, and even a lot of mockery. And Paul goes from uh, Thessalonica, he goes to Corinth, and the people in Corinth opposed him and reviled him, we're told in Acts 18. They were too sophisticated to believe in what Paul was saying. They were too, quote, open-minded to hear about the exclusivity of Jesus the Christ and so Paul's down. I mean, he's discouraged by all this. But while he's there, in the middle of his discouragement, Timothy and Silas, two of Paul's best friends, they arrived from Thessalonica where they had very good news. And that news was God has done an incredible work in Thessalonica. God has done a revival in Thessalonica and brought people of all different backgrounds and stripes to saving faith in Jesus. They would bring to this discouraged Paul this news. These people are on fire for the Lord. They are eager to be taught and they're looking forward to the return of Christ. But 
I mean, they still needed to be instructed in the gospel. They still need to be informed in the gospel. And they needed to understand just what a gospel-fueled life really looks like in terms of day-to-day practice. So Paul would write to them toward the end of the letter as he's wrapping up 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 18. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Again, this is very practical instruction here. And are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now notice what Paul does here. He's writing to a group of Christians, again, different ethnic, racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different personalities, different ages, and he says to them, to all of them, this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you. Now what does this refer to? Well, it refers to the last three commands in verses 16 through 18, which all kind of proceed from one root. Paul says that God's will for these Christians at Thessalonica and God's will for us, God's will for you is to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Now, I want to talk about each of those little phrases, but first I want to zoom out for a moment. And let's talk for just a few minutes about God's will. Uh, I grew up hearing, and, and maybe you did as well, and these three, the three wills of God, so to speak. Uh, and, and they kind of broke down, and this was reinforced by books in the 1980s, and maybe you came across some of those, but those three different aspects of God's will broke down like this. God's sovereign will, also called his, his decorative will, not decorative, decorative like you know, decorations, but decorative like decrees. So God's sovereign will was, uh, that was God's secret hidden will uh, by which, according to his own infinite wisdom, he ordains everything whatsoever shall come to pass. His sovereign will or his decorative will, what he's decreed to happen. And then there was, I was told, God's moral will, which is God's revealed will. This is all the commands in scripture. So all the commands in scripture, you know, summarized by love God and love your neighbor as yourself, um, these all make up God's moral will, what we're supposed to do. And then I was told, and maybe you were too, again, a lot of literature in the 1980s, early 90s. I was told then there's God's individual will, and this is God's personal, detailed life plan for you that you're supposed to find out or seek out or figure out. So that's kind of the way that, that I was taught. And it wasn't actually until I went to seminary that I you know, was informed uh, differently. God's individual will, again, was supposed to be something we were to figure out, this ideal, specific life plan that God has for each of us to discover. And the analogy was kind of a, a bullseye. And you might hear somebody say, yeah, but you really want to be in the center of God's will. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Have you ever said that to anybody? Yeah, but you want to be in the center of God's will. In other words, God has this will, but you got to find out the, the really narrow bullseye where the arrow hits, and you don't want to be outside of the center of God's will. So that's kind of what the way that you know we were uh, implored um, when it came to a house or a spouse or a car or a job or a college or whatever it was. The goal was to figure out which one was at the center of God's will. 
That was God's individual will for your life. Well, I want to suggest to you that, that the idea of God's sovereign will is, is entirely biblical. And I don't know if you can see, there's a, well, you see where I'm going here. There's a line through the bottom one. But um, the idea of God's sovereign will is entirely biblical. We'll get to that in a moment. This idea that God is, this reality, that God has worked out all things according to his plan. His sovereign, decorative plan. And the idea, the notion of God's moral will, entirely biblical. But I want to suggest to you that this idea that we have this individual, detailed life plan that we're supposed to figure out or find out is actually not a biblical notion at all. If you want to do some more reading on this, there's a book by James Petty called Step by Step, Divine Guidance for Ordinary Christians. And he says that there's not a single place in Scripture where either implicitly or explicitly um, we're instructed to seek out and find God's so-called individual will for our lives. Now, to be sure, as we review these, and we're going to really narrow it down and make very specific application, but as we review these, the Bible's filled with examples of God's sovereign will. Filled with examples. God, God's sovereign is sovereign in that it shows God to be the supreme ruler of the universe who ordains everything that comes to pass. It is uh, God's decorative will in the sense that it, it, it unfolds according to his divine decrees. And it is hidden because God doesn't tell us his sovereign will and he doesn't invite us to try to figure it out either. In fact, we should not try to figure out God's sovereign will. He's God. The book of Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things to us, his children. So, so yeah, God's sovereign over all of it. And even as we think about this doctrine of election, I had a great exchange with someone even last week, someone struggling with the doctrine of election. I said, okay, well, let's, before we even get into that, let's first establish or look at and see how God is sovereign over everything. Right? Every little thing that happens. Paul tells the Ephesians that everything that happens, happens as a result of God's will. Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's God's sovereign will. He does invite us up into his mind, so to speak, to know what he has sovereignly determined. Jesus says not even a bird falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. He writes, or he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. Even human decisions, yes, even human decisions unfold according to God's sovereign will. Genesis 20, we read this. This is an incredible statement. Then God said to him, that is Abimelech in a dream. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Not taking Sarah in an intimate way. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. The Proverbs say that God is sovereign even over the hearts of men. And as an example, we hear about the most powerful person in the land. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every detail, every aspect of life, everything that happens unfolds according to God's sovereign will. And let me give you one more. I absolutely love this one. Look at the word of the prophet Daniel. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will 
among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I mean, can you imagine, we saw this in Romans 9, the foolishness, the hubris of saying to God, the creator of the universe, the one who made it all, who holds it all together, what have you done? The creature responding with such foolishness and arrogance to the creator. And here Daniel says, no, no one can say to God, what, is, what have you done? God works according to his sovereign will. His sovereign will is all throughout the scripture. And we're told that none can resist it. It never changes. It, it, it is as secure as God's character. So yeah, God's sovereign will, it's in there. Now what about God's moral will? Well, this is, we see this over, I, I just read one example a minute ago, but we see this over and over in scripture that we're told, do this, for this is God's will for you. Do this, this is God's will for you. One passage in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians says it very succinctly. We see it throughout the New Testament. One I read, there's an earlier one in 1 Thess. But look at 1 John 2.17. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the will of God there is presented as something we do. This is not a reference to God's sovereign will. No one can do God's sovereign will. This is a reference to God's moral will. The commands of God represent God's will for our lives. So during the, the summer of 1983, my little sister Jennifer, who's uh, just about two years younger than I am, so in the summer of 1983, she broke an elementary school record by reading more books in one summer than anybody had ever read. I think it was like 537 books. She had them all written down. During that same summer, I read one book, and I started another one, but I didn't finish it. Um, I spent my summer riding my bike, playing basketball, playing wiffle ball, playing baseball, playing tackle football in the street, anything you can imagine, that's, that's what I did. And so my sister, still, you know, I'm 52, she's almost 50, she's still, or 50 I guess, she, she's, she has not forgotten that, the disparity between 537 and one and one quarter. And so she brings it up. Um, and it's for, that's one reason why I will not play Trivial Pursuit against my sister. I just, I will not, I don't care if it's a family gathering, Christmas party, I'm not going to do it because she knows all the answers to all the questions. Um, I didn't read that many books, but there was one series that I actually really loved a little bit later on as a sixth grader and a seventh grader. And it was a, it was a series called the Choose Your Own Adventure series. Anybody remember this? I absolutely love that. Um, these cleverly written paperbacks allow the reader to mark his or her own path and then suffer the consequences or reap the benefits. And so you would read a chapter and at the end of the chapter you would say, okay, if you want to, if you want to collect the treasure, go to page 51. If you want to skip the treasure and go on this whatever, go to page uh, you know, 73 or whatever. So you get to there, you'd flip to whatever it was, and then your adventure would continue. Well, because that, that was more than three decades ago, and I've come you know, to actually appreciate reading, um, and I, I read a lot now. And, uh, and one of the things that I realized, though, even about that series, is that that Choose Your Own Adventure series is actually very much like the way that we approach uh, the will of God. God has a sovereign will, which theologians again refer to as secret plan that governs everything that happens. God has a moral will comprised of his revealed commands and scripture, which of course we're commanded to obey. 
Um, but in lieu of a specific detailed life plan that we're supposed to seek out and find, often referred to again as God's individual will, God has given us freedom in those non-moral areas to chart our own course. Yes, I mean, I know it sounds more pious to say, well, I want God to make that decision for me. That sounds really spiritual, but, or I'm waiting on God to reveal his perfect will for my life. I've got to find God's individual will. I've got these three houses to buy, but I've got to find out which one is the bullseye. But scripture never presents God's will as something we are supposed to find, but instead something we understand and do. The passages in the Psalter, by the way, that talk about waiting on God, you might remember those, and maybe that comes up as an immediate objection to what I'm saying. They're not talking about waiting on God for decision-making purposes, but trusting in God for deliverance from the hand of an enemy. So perhaps then instead of looking at God's will as a, either as a mysterious path that we gotta find or, or the, the bullseye, a better analogy actually is a backyard. So a backyard has fences, and the fences would represent God's moral will. So you don't want to transgress the fence. You, know, you don't want to go over the fence. You stay in the yard, but there's freedom within the yard. We use wisdom, and, and you know, if, there's, if there's a big towering tree in the yard, you don't want to be under that tree during a lightning storm, right? If, if there's a pool in the yard... You don't want to allow, you know, a young child to go near the pool. So there's freedom, but you employ wisdom, but there's room to roam, so to speak. Now, does this mean that God has left us to fend for ourselves in this uneven world? Of course not. God has given us his word, which serves as a lamp unto our feet, his spirit who comforts us and persuades us of the truth of scripture. And he's also given us each other. And we provide mutual encouragement, support, instruction, guidance. But a biblical view of God's will recognizes that we have all we need to live successful and God-honoring lives. There's not some secret, mysterious, detailed life plan that we have to figure out for ourselves. Now, I realize when I say that, well, let me say this. I know that a sermon on such a misunderstood topic, one sermon is not going to, you know, that's not going to answer all the questions and, and, I, and I don't think, you know, I understand there's going to be other things that surface and maybe you have specific questions. I would love to talk with you about those. But I do think that God's will can be summed up in a sim simple sentence. So you ready to hear God's will for your life? I'm going to give it to you right now. Here it is. God's will for your life is this. Do what God says and prayerfully and wisely enjoy freedom in the areas not covered by commands. So we do what God says. We do what his commands say. But in those areas where there aren't specific commands, God doesn't tell us, you know, we'll buy this, uh, buy a Chevrolet over a Toyota or buy this house on this street over this house. You have a house to buy. You don't have to figure out which one is God's will. Just apply wisdom. What can you afford? Is it close to where you live? Is it close to the church where you worship? You know, and you go on and you look at those wisdom principles. Um, you're trying to decide on a college. It's not like, oh, there's this one mysterious college and that's the one that's God's will for me. And I gotta figure it out. No, we look at a lot of th things. What can you afford? Does it offer a degree program that's, that, that fits with what you wanna do? Um, you know, what's the spiritual climate? What's the proximity to pe people you know? And I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you apply, wisdom. Uh, 
Students, your job is not to find that elusive and mysterious one. You know, this I get this all the time, or I have over the years, especially when I work with college students. Yeah, but how do I know if he's the one? How do I know if she's the one? God's not called you to try to figure out who's that mysterious one for me. What God calls you to do is do what he says as it relates to finding a spouse, and then find somebody you like, somebody you, you, you're attracted to, somebody who makes you laugh, somebody who has the same philosophy of life and life goals. People sometimes ask me, especially young adults, does it matter if I'm attracted to this person? Does it matter if I find this person attractive? I say, well, first of all, you're the one who has to wake up next to that person for the next 30 or 40, 50 years. Um, now, we don't want to choose someone basically, based simply on looks. That, that would be shallow. But if you're repelled by someone's appearance, it does no good to over-spiritualize and say, oh, I cannot stand looking at that person, but must be God's will for my life. That's not the way that it works. We apply, we do what God says, we obey God's commands, and then we find somebody that we enjoy, somebody that really compliments us, somebody that we can delight in, somebody that makes us laugh, someone that we appreciate, and so on. So, well, what does it mean, though, to find a spouse, what does God say about that? Well, he or she must be a believer. So that's critical. That's way up at the very top. Must be a Christian. You know, Paul says in a different letter, not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, which is not specifically about marriage, but certainly applies to marriage or any other sort of spiritual enterprise. Um, he or she must love God's people. That is to say the church. So if you find somebody and they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, you say, well, what, what church are you part of? They say, oh, look, I don't, I, don't have time for, I don't have time for church. I don't have time for organized religion or whatever. That's a real common thing among certain generation. Don't have time for organized religion. Well, the book of 1 John, Hebrews, other places, very clear. A person should love the church, God's people. And he or she must be committed to uh, obedience to God's commands. That is a life of glorifying God. It's just about that simple. Now, we can, we can maybe apply some different commands also. but So let's apply the choose-your-own-adventure paradigm to discern in God's will in a real scenario. So you've got a very important decision to make. You've got a very stressful decision, and you don't know what to do. You can't sleep. You just think, I don't know how to handle this decision. So let me, let's apply this, this choose-your-own-paradigm here. So how will you respond to this decision? Okay, page one. Life has thrown you a curve. And you don't know what to do. First question to ask, is this decision covered by a clear command in Scripture? Is it covered by a clear... This is page one. Is it covered by a clear command in Scripture? If yes, then go to page two. Page two says, congratulations, obey the command, this is God's will for you. So it's covered by a clear... You know, do not lie, do not... Uh, get drunk on wine, avoid sexual immorality, love your neighbor, forget, you know, we could go on and on because all the commands. So, so page one, I don't know what to do. You ask the question, is it covered by a command in scripture? Yes, go to page two. Page two says, obey God's commands. Congratulations, that's God's will for you. Now, what if you say, okay, it's not really covered by a command. Okay, then you go to page three. Page three says, study for clarification, pray, seek biblical counsel, Seek wisdom from the scriptures. Now, if upon further review, the decision is covered by a clear command, you go back to page two. What does page two say? 
Obey God's will, congratulations. You know, obey God, so there's God's will. But you say, no, I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm wrestling with it, and I still don't know. I've searched the scriptures. I've sought out biblical counsel. I've prayed for God to give me wisdom. I don't really know if it's covered by a command or not. Okay, go to page four. Process data through a biblical worldview. In other words, consider things like love for neighbor, human obligation, motives, the sinfulness of our own heart, you know, expert advice, research, analytics. You, got, you love that part. Um, counsel of informed friends, you know, what your own passions and giftedness are. So you consider all those things and then you say, um, well, still not covered by a command. So then, they, then you go to page five and pi, page five says, plot your course of action and proceed with vigor, periodically evaluate. This is God's will for you. Now, I understand, you know, that doesn't answer every question, but I think that's the point, actually. It doesn't answer every question, but I think that's the point. God wants us to obey him and trust that he has our good and his glory always at, at, at heart, and those two are not competing interests. Uh, pastor and author Kevin DeYoung has a great book, a little book called Just Do Something, and in it he writes... Too often God's people tinker around with churches, jobs, and relationships, worrying that they haven't found God's perfect will for their lives. Or even worse, they do absolutely nothing, stuck in a frustrated state of paralyzed indecision. But God doesn't need to tell us what to do at each fork in the road. He's already revealed his plan for our lives, to love him with our whole hearts, to obey his word, and after that, to do what we like. You know, some people have this theology that if I do whatever I like, it's got to be against God's will. But what, God, what I really, really don't want to do more than anything else in the world, that has to be God's will for me. But that's not biblical. And it may even sound really spiritual, but that's not biblical. Okay, so at the start, I said that I would try to tie all this together with our Romans series, especially Romans 8 and 9. God's sovereignty, the doctrine of election, and the, and the Thanksgiving holiday. And I realize that's a very ambitious goal that I surely won't fully reach. But I want to try to explain this a little further. If God's will is for us to obey him, what specifically does that mean? Well, look at verses 16 through 18 again of chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what is God's will for you very specifically right now? It is to rejoice always. Now it doesn't mean that you plaster on a fake smile when things don't go well. You, you act like you're really happy and bubbly when, when you're not. That's not what Paul's talking about. After all, that's not what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus, remember John 11, he counters the, tomb of his friend Lazarus and says the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And this was not some single isolated tear trickling down his tree, cheek while he looked off pensively in the distance. No, he actually wept. This is a ugly face turned over inside out sobbing. That's what Jesus did. So we can't say, well, if you're a Christian, you've got to always be happy you got to always have a smile and always respond in a sing-song voice. No, that's not what Paul's talking about here when he says rejoice. To rejoice always is to focus on what we have in Christ versus what we lack in our circumstances. 
That's why there's so many calls in the New Testament to joyful living, even among those who are being persecuted. Joyful doesn't mean, again, fake happiness. It refers to the real hopefulness that comes from being reconciled to God in Christ. And next Paul says, pray without ceasing. This is not a command to do nothing in your life but pray. Okay? This doesn't mean you can't have a job. It doesn't mean you can't do anything productive. You got to pray. When I was uh, eight, I guess I was probably 19, 20 years old, I, was, I, I had a job interview and I borrowed my aunt and uncle's car. And it was downtown, right at the heart of the city. And so this true story, I'm embarrassed to say, I guess on one side, I should be proud of it, I guess, but I was actually praying on my way there. And for a split second, I closed my eyes to pray while I was driving. And I ran into the person in front of me. So I realized I was being a little too spiritual then. I can still keep my eyes open and pray. This is not a command that everything, you just have to drop everything and always pray. That's not uh, what Paul's talking about. Um, he's saying that we should have such a confidence in who God is and such a constant recognition that we belong to God that our lives are characterized by regular ongoing communion with our Father. And that recognition actually makes it possible to rejoice. See, prayer and rejoicing are closely related. The one who is regular in prayer is the one who's able to see things better from God's perspective and therefore rejoice. And the one who's in prayer and then rejoicing is also able to give thanks. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. So, you want to know God's will for your life? Be thankful. There's no mystery to it. Be thankful. Recognize and take comfort in God's sovereign will, the reality that everything that happens to you comes to you from the hand of a loving Father who has your ultimate best interest in mind. And being thankful then means cultivating a spirit-enabled attitude of gratefulness, which then actually gives way to rejoicing and praying. Now, I don't want to run past this very, very important phrase in this passage. And it actually addresses the second question that I said I would answer. The first was, what's God's will for my life? And the second is, how will I carry it out? And the phrase that all of this depends on, I read verses 12 through 18, there's a whole bunch of commands in there. And all of, that, all of those depend on this one phrase, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's the phrase. In Christ Jesus. Paul does what he always does. When he tells Christians what to do, he always tells them what's been done. Leon Morris, the great New Testament scholar, says, like the preceding two injunctions, uh, that is to rejoice and be thankful. This one springs from the great central truth of the gospel. God in Christ has saved you, which means that everything is altered. In the middle of commanding the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians rather, how to live, Paul reminds them of what God has done for them. He has chosen them. He has justified them. He has adopted them. He has sanctified them. He will glorify them, and he will one day return for them. And these are really all the things we saw in Romans 8, aren't they? They are in Christ Jesus, and nothing or no one can ever change that. Without that reality, without that understanding that if you are, you are in Christ Jesus, 
You will never be able to obey God out of love, which is the only type of obedience that pleases God anyway. Theologically speaking, the term for being in Christ Jesus is a reference to our union with Christ. And the union with Christ is a reference to all the things that we have because of Jesus. All the things that Jesus earned by his obedient life that are now ours by faith in him. These are the benefits, the blessings of being in Christ. You are forgiven. Yes, everything you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed, if you're in Christ, you're forgiven. God doesn't hold it against you. You are chosen. The great comfort of the early apostles, the great comfort of the early martyrs, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. You are redeemed. You are loved. You are destined for eternity with God. These are all benefits that are ours in Christ. So as to the question, how can I carry out God's will? Here's the answer, which is our second and final point. The power to do what God commands, i.e. God's moral will, comes from trusting in what God has already done in Christ. It is the realization of who we are in Christ and all that a loving father has done to reconcile that estranged relationship back to himself that causes our hearts to explode with gratitude and enables us to obey God out of love. Now think about this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son. We, we went through John a couple of years ago and don't expect anybody to remember a single sermon from that, but over and over and over and over and over that Jesus is called the one God sent. Because of love, God sent his son. God sent his son to live for us and to die for us, to die a brutal death on the cross that was actually for our sin, not his. He never sinned. But he died for our sins and he was raised again on the third day according to the scripture for our own justification, that is to secure our forever right standing with God. And that standing can never be jeopardized. God's love for us is secure. His forgiveness is secure. His affections for us do not change. Our future is secure. And the more that we think about that, the more that we actually really believe that at the soul level, the more that we revel in what God has done for us in Christ, his rescue of us when we failed, his forgiveness of us which is undeserved, his death in our place, all those things that flow from our union with Christ, the more we will find that we are able to resist temptation and able to actually do God's will. You know, you've probably heard someone say before, I, I used to see the world in black and white, you know, and now I, I, I see it in color. I've heard that a lot of times, and I'm sure I've used that phrase. Well, that's the way that it is when we understand all that we are and have simply by grace alone in Christ alone. Because before that, it's all about working and earning and succeeding and making sure that I'm paying off this debt that I owe God and all that stuff. But when we actually understand that God has done everything in Christ, it's done, it's finished, it's completed, as Jesus himself said on the cross, then we're able to see the world in color when we recognize that our salvation is so secure that not even we can mess it up. It leads to hearts of joyful and grateful obedience. And we're not only going to do, we're not only going to do good works as a result of that, um, if we're driven by this reality, 
But that's the only way, again, that we'll ever obey God out of love. It's the recognition that I am completely and totally loved by God. I can never get more saved than I am right now, and I can never be less saved than I am right now. Sometimes people worry, though, if I hear, if we hear so much about God's love, you know, we hear so much about God's grace, won't that lead to spiritual apathy? Won't that lead to indifference? Won't that de- lead to a life of disobedience and carelessness? And I think we can answer that question by, by way of a parenting analogy. Will our kids desire to honor us and please us from the heart if they know how much we love them or if they're constantly in doubt of our love? It's only if they're going to be fully assured of our love will they obey us out of love. We would expect, we would never expect our emotionally distanced teenager to be better behaved because they're emotionally distanced. That's not the way it works. But we wouldn't be surprised if our teenager, if he knows how much he's loved and he knows that love is never going to go away if he actually wants to please and honor his parents. The same can be said about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. The more secure we are in his love, the more that we understand all that he has done for us in Christ, the more that we recognize that we're never more saved than we'll be now, we're never less saved than we are now, we are absolutely secure in God and Christ, the more we will want, desire, long to obey God from the heart. And that's why doing God's will only happens when we realize and rejoice in what's already been done. And this is why... We want our sermons and our songs and our symbols and our sacraments or ordinances all to point to the finished work of Christ. And that's why we want everything we do, as we're going to sing in just a moment, everything we do to keep driving us to the cross, keep moving us closer to the cross so that we are near the cross. And when we're near the cross, we're confident of God's love And our hearts say, okay, Lord, what's next? I want to do what pleases you. Let's pray.